morning, good morning, or good evening, or good afternoon, or tonight. <clears throat> I'm thinking of the Truman Show. Welcome to the other side of midnight, where the world ever, ever, ever turns. And we literally have people and guests this morning from the other side of this rotating globe. Um, before I get to my guests of the morning, we're going to talk about this fascinating subject of portals. NASA apparently has officially admitted there are portals in space. Now, they're claiming they're kind of mundane and they're just magnetic, but uh, if you ran into a portal, I do not advise this, but if you went by one and looked at it or tried to sample it, what would you see in three dimensions? Would you not see an, elect an electromagnetic signature? I mean, wouldn't portals be kind of magnetic and electric? And Unless you're measuring torsion, which of course is a whole other discussion. Anyway, before we get into this very interesting subject, because it started in D.C. and now it has branched out, and we're going to have real data to talk about this morning as we talk about space portals. First thing I want to bring up is a, a news item uh, on in my items on the other side of midnight. Go to, get ready, theothersideofmidnight.com. Click on tonight's graphic showing this very gorgeous portal opening over the White House, a la Kinthea. And click on that. That will take you to the guest page tonight. Scroll down past Radio with Pictures, and you'll see the show items. My item, the first one is another fire yesterday broke out on the 50th floor of Trump Tower. Now, remember, a few months ago, maybe a couple, three months ago, there was another fire that occurred at Trump Tower on the roof, air conditioning unit, whatever. Um, this one was on the 50th floor, and it killed someone, a 67-year-old uh, owner of the apartment who apparently was an art dealer. That's how he could afford to live in Trump Tower. And a personal friend of Andy Warhol uh, unfortunately passed away. Now, once is weird. Twice is really weird. I mean, I'm beginning to get the idea that maybe this was not an act. We'll have to wait for the official report, of course, but... This is um, kind of suspicious. A couple of other items there as you're scrolling down the page. There has been a test conducted by a biology group in Ohio. I don't have their exact institutional title in front of me at the moment, but they apparently have done uh, audio and computerized frequency tests on air-to-ground conversations from the astronauts. Buzz Aldrin, Ed Mitchell, um, and a couple of others. I forget the other two. And the, this is kind of like a new age, no, that's the wrong term, updated version of the classic, you know, lie detector test, which uses breath and skin resistance and all that. This apparently is listening to, with, a, with an algorithm, apparently a proprietary algorithm, uh, the voice stress. It's kind of like a voice stress analyzer, except maybe souped up or augmented for 20th century, 21st century uh, uh, analysis. Anyway, they've done four astronauts talking about UFOs that they saw while they were in space, on mission, on orbit. And apparently they all pass. In other words, the astronauts, according to this technology, reported something anomalous, and they believe what they're reporting. And that's about all you can say, because, you know, was there something really there? Who knows? We weren't there. I just find it interesting that as this 
you know, post the Pentagon revelation that there was 22 plus or minus million dollars allocated to a secret slush fund to investigate the potential national security concerns around UFOs in the last several years, spearheaded by the uh, former Senate Majority Leader from Nevada, um, there has been this increasing, maybe we're past the drip, 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 maybe we're into the splash, splash, splash on the subject of UFOs. And this latest one, this kind of ping on the idea that Buzz Aldrin reporting an L-shaped anomalous object uh, was reporting something real that he was seeing out the window. That's, again, part of this accumulating buzz, you know, going viral in social media around the subject of UFOs. Now, tonight we're going to talk about the potentials for real unidentified things appearing in places where they shouldn't appear. Not just kind of tracking across the sky, but kind of popping out of somewhere. Uh, and then we're going to talk about some of the technologies and physics associated with it. And then we're going to talk about some things that Robert Stanley has brought to the table, which is something really amazingly cool called time crystals. What the heck is a time crystal? Well, we're going to find out. My third item, apropos of the theme of last night, that we're involved in this kind of secret semi-secret war that the in crowd is anticipating that we are going to have some kind of confrontation. Well, if you take that to its extremes, you know, you're back to World War III, you're back to nuclear holocaust, you're back to annihilation of civilization, if not humanity. Although we've had some pretty horrible things happen to humanity going back tens and hundreds of thousands of years, and we're still here, but it would not take much at all to kill civilization, and we're immediately back to 19th century, 18th century, and billions of people will literally die because they will starve. They won't be blown away in a nuclear fireball. They will starve. Because if you, if you slice all the networks that provide all of us on the planet now, this interdependent connected planet, with the mechanisms for importing food and fuel and you know, potable water and things like that, on which billions of people are dependent every single day. I mean, the web is so complex and it is so fragile. And I remember this conversation taking place with a physicist out of Caltech back in 1965 when I was living in New England and we um, suffered a major power problem, or I should say New York did, all of New York was blacked out. They traced it to some kind of weird power anomaly up uh, at Niagara Falls. There were rumors of UFOs associated with it. But what this Caltech professor said was that we are balanced on a knife edge, and he was hailing the blackout of 65, which blacked out New York City, eight-plus million people for at least a day. I forget, maybe it was two days. It you know, kind of blurs. The reason it blurs is because we were sitting in New England on a mountaintop with full power lights and all the usual stuff because our power came from the one of the world's first civilian nuclear power plants, Yankee Atomic, which was located, I think, 15 or 20 miles away. So while the rest of that region was suffering from, you know, night, suddenly enforced night, we had power. And it made me really appreciate the idea of alternative power sources. Now, we can have discussions about nuclear versus all the other stuff. I mean, obviously, the ultimate way to go is 
hyperdimensional torsion field technologies that allow you with something the size of a red box put in your basement or in the basement of your apartment house to basically live off the ether, the torsion field with electrical energy forever with no downtime. It doesn't go out. It doesn't, it's not knocked off by storms. It's, it's right there. It's distributed power. It's the ultimate way that civilizations will survive because if you have huge distributed networks where you have lots of power and lots of cables and lots of high tension lines and lots of towers and all this, we now know per the last election, in addition to putzing around with our voting, the Russians also have sent trolls to actually try to take control to penetrate in terms of cyber the, the, the mechanisms, the control mechanisms of our national electric grid. Well, that's really stunning. You know, you open a war and you go to press the button to fire your response missiles and nothing happens. Well, that's, you know, obviously a situation that in terms of military would not occur because they have independent power. But you can imagine the civilian population during that situation. They lose the grid. <clears throat> They're breathing in radiation. They don't have any transportation because there's no trucks and no gasoline to, or diesel to fuel, you know, what would be carrying stuff to the supermarket. And all the supermarket's gone because it's been, you know, raided by marauding people who are desperate to I mean, we're looking at the end of real civilization if this occurs. And the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, as you know, has moved their clock, which they've been maintaining now in terms of nuclear war, uh, the countdown to when it could occur from, what was it, three minutes to midnight to two minutes to midnight. That occurred, I think, about a year ago. Anyway, into this conversation, uh, Elon Musk has proposed that a Mars colony a lunar and a Mars colony, he's talking about both, would be a real hedge against World War III, which, of course, when I heard that, I flashed back to the Martian Chronicles and Ray Bradbury's stunning scene where the Martian colonists there are looking through telescopes and watching the incandescence of the nuclear bombs lighting up the cities and the destruction of terrestrial civilization, and they go on because they're separated by at a minimum, 35 million miles of empty space. So if we're on the precipice of some thing, some event, I mean, looking at mainstream news, there's disquieting evidence that there are people that are not totally rational making you know, threats and gestures against each other. And then if you look upstairs, you find you know, the UFO thing is, is kind of heating up. Is there someone out there who was posing a threat? Is that why the president suddenly said out of the blue that he wanted a space force of Marines a few days ago when he was speaking at Miramar? And is that why, for instance, when the uh, Amuamua, this messenger from interstellar space last October, when sailing through the solar system, the in crowd named it not first messenger. That was, that was the pablum they put out in the mainstream media. If you, as Keith Laney, one of our guys, did look at the actual Hawaiian dictionary, Amuamua does not mean first messenger. It means battle scout of a war party, which means when you name something, back to Shakespeare, what by any other name? If the in crowd thinks that this first interstellar messenger was really the scout of someone, a fleet, something coming behind. Now, remember, it doesn't make it true. We're talking perception. 
But perceptions or misperceptions have gotten us into an awful lot of trouble in history. And it would be a shame when we're on the on the verge of doing astonishing, incredible things, reconnecting with our real heritage, finding out who we are in the solar system, finding the libraries, finding the, the mechanisms of solving all of the world's current terrestrial problems, from hunger to longevity to unlimited environmentally safe power, all these things which a lot of inventors behind the scenes have tried to bring to market and they've been squashed, if it comes in through the extraterrestrial doorway, because it will have to be official for the time being to come in through that doorway, it could radically change the world and for the better. So something seems to be coming into this world, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight with my two guests. Wilbur Allen is a UFO researcher and contactee who has forensically documented sightings and anomalies, discussed NASA's confirmation of the existence of hidden portals in Earth's magnetic field, and he relates these now to wormholes, believing they are the means that ET craft can travel into our world and between dimensions. Wormholes are associated with Earth's north and south pole, and Admiral Byrd was likely seeing ET craft, according to Wilbur, traveling out of the South Pole wormhole during his expedition. I should also remind you that Wilbur is someone who used to live in Washington and has now moved away. He's outside of Washington, and um, he has been seeing interesting UFO activity and, more important, documenting it photographically because he is a professional high-end photographer. He was formerly an official White House photographer, and because there are a lot of new people in the audience when we bring Wilbur on, we will um, have him kind of recount some of those early experiences and how he got into this very squishy field for decade after decade after decade of UFOs. My other guest this morning is an old friend of mine who has now moved not just out of D.C., but out of the United States, and he's on the other side, literally, of the planet tonight. Well, over there, I think it's uh, early afternoon. Robert Stanley is the author of two groundbreaking books, Close Encounters on Capitol Hill, and Covert Encounters in Washington, D.C. These, of course, are the literary documentation of what I discussed, discussed in, in reference to Wilbur. During his passionate pursuit of modern and ancient mysteries, Robert has traveled to some 58 countries in 57 years. His quest for unique ideas and information has led him to research and write about many controversial topics, his ongoing investigations have been featured on television, radio, print, and the internet. And just a couple of days ago, he relaunched his radio show on KGRA, The Unicus Hour. <clears throat> and with all due modesty, <clears throat> he selected me out of all the gin joints in all the world to be his first guest. Gentlemen, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. Oh, thanks, Richard. Thank you for having me. As my grandma, I won't quote my grandmother. I quote my grandmother too much. Anyway, um, who wants to go? Who wants to go first? I, I would think, uh, Wilbur, we should have you go first, because you right. held an official position under an administration in Washington, and somehow you got into this idea of physically, photographically, imaging-wise, term I just made up, documenting some really intriguing anomalies over the nation's capital. And then, Robert, you got involved with documenting what Wilbur was documenting, including ground truth on the ground with interviews and things that were happening that no one else is reporting and all that. So let's start with Wilbur. 
Wilbur, when did you when did you work as the White House photographer? I worked not as a White House photographer, but as a broadcast engineer uh, for Ronald Reagan, George Bush, and Bill Clinton. Hmm. How did I get the wild at, idea that at you ABC were, News? At he was ABC working for ABC. News yeah. With with a few people that are in fact working on this show. Okay. Well, then that's obviously wrong, and we'll take that down on my blog talk uh, entry because I missed up. I messed it up really, really bad. Can't do no, that. No, you did. It's all good. It's all good. Okay, so you were at ABC, and apparently there were some things happening around ABC when you were we were employed there that were kind of curious. I had a friend who was my supervisor, David Group Seven, who claimed to have seen extraterrestrials around John Glenn during uh, a Senate hearing. And it affected him so much that it, it made him essentially lose his mind and his job. And that's where um, I and decided... His, go on, go and on. His, and his life. And his life. Ultimately, it, it cost he, him his life. He died. He's at that, He died not last year. But oh, that's nevertheless, a shame. Now, all right, let's, let's go in. What, what did he see that was so disquieting? I mean, UFOs as a subject have been with no. us for decade after decade. Well, according yeah. according to, to Gordy, it was uh, a group of aliens, one or two of them, which were floating in the floating among the crowd. And he claimed that nobody else had seen them. It could see them. And they were responding to him interacting with them. And it, it disturbed him deeply. What was even more in intriguing with all of that is a year later in lower senate park i documented a uh, formation of green fireballs which generated a stargate a portal and i documented this formation of green fireballs in a flash of the light exit the airspace and they just happen to have been the same anomalies documented by buzz aldrin during apollo 11 on uh, route to the moon outside the command module hmm uh, Robert, when did you get into the act? When yeah. did you connect with, with Wilbur and decide to write these two very interesting books, which, which basically discuss the idea of UFOs, not only above Washington, but ETs, quote, right. aliens on the ground? Yeah, covertly in Washington, D.C. Uh, it was Daryl Sims actually sent me oh, an email Darryl. that he got from, you know, he got an email from Wilbur who was kind of beside himself at that point. I mean, he had these authentic uh, analog photographs on 35 millimeter film. And he naturally, let's back up a second. He worked for ABC News. So who do you think was the first people he took <laughs> this information to? It was ABC News. It was mm -hmm. the station chief at, at in Washington, D.C. And apparently she refused to even acknowledge it. So all the major media refused to touch it. Um, there was a guy, uh, an editor at National, what was it, National, uh, National Geographic, or wasn't it, Will? Uh, he was seemed, he showed some interest, and then he was let go shortly after that. Yeah, it may have just been a second. It was Nat Geo, yes. National Geographic. Um, anyway, so then he started shopping this, uh, his photographs to take in July 16, 2002 at the Capitol building in front of the reflecting pool uh, of these numerous UFOs over the Capitol at night. And no, one, no, no response from any kind of law enforcement or military, which is strange. And, um, and it happened to coincide with the 50-year anniversary of uh, the, the big flap in Washington, D.C. in 1952. So... 
Um, the thing is that the people in the UFO community really were not interested. They, for whatever reason, I think, I kind of feel like they were intimidated. They also probably thought it was a hoax. In fact, that's what Daryl was asking me. He goes, are these, in your opinion, are these pictures real? And I couldn't tell for sure because it was just an email with some pictures. So fortunately, Wilbur's contact information was there. And I think that was May 2005. And so I just called him up. I'm like, hey, I'm sitting here looking at this email with your pictures. What's this, What's going on? And he didn't know me from anybody. And we just started talking. And the reason Will was so uh, open with me is because I was actually very interested in um, finding out how that was even possible that he could take pictures of an event of that magnitude. And everybody was slamming the door in his face or walking away thinking it was a hoax or not worth investigating. I mean, that was a whole nother level of weird that I couldn't put wrap my mind around at the time. So anyway, we've been talking now, what, it's like 13 years later, we're still talking about this story. So Wilbur, when you started seeing these anomalies, you, you being professional, you decided you would document them. Talk about how you go about documenting something that nobody else is willing to cop to, even, even acknowledges going on over their heads. You know, I, 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 I've asked, myself that question several times and the only thing logically that is the only answer that could be the reason why I'm getting these samples is first contact as a child when they implanted me with whatever anomaly that's in me and it's interesting that when I do set up my technology to photograph events it, it's set up in such a way that it's almost as if I'm instructed where and when to target my cameras and when I set it up in those specific instructions i get the events that i'm supposed to get on film hmm. so how does one screen an event that's photographable from every other photographer in dc and there's an awful lot of people taking pictures in dc because it's a very picturesque town well you know one of the things that's interesting and and, and most of my samples are nighttime examples and that the required technology necessary to photograph something at night it's not necessarily the type of technology that you'll find on your iphone or on a generic camera and i had to utilize specialized high definition high iso cameras to specifically photograph at 60 frames per second the motion picture samples that i'm able to get okay hey, can, before we go on let's uh, well i wanted you to explain to people the when before you went digital and, and specifically in, in July 2002, when you shot that 35 millimeter analog film and you developed it, you said it was slide film, didn't you? Uh, one, one was slide, the, the slide film was US, was the Washington Monument and the yeah. color negative film was the US Capitol building. Okay, so, but you said, you also told me that you developed- I developed the, that, all of my film. I had a film right. at In your home, in yes. Washington, D.C. Well, yes. could you tell this audience, explain to them what you told me about the process that you used to develop that thing, to push it um, past its the, normal ASA? The microwave and the time modification to what, what technically I would do in, in normal development, for example. Well, hang on, hang on, guys. hang on, hang on. We're talking to an audience that may not know what film is. So <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. I'm absolutely serious. Yeah, no, you're right. There, right. there was a kid the other day, someone sent me an email or told me that the, the, the kid, when he was told something about film, he said, is that a new app? <laughs> so start, Wilbur, like we're all really, really dumb. How does film in a camera record a picture? 
it records a picture on particles of salt which are embedded into the emulsion. And those particles of salt are excited by light that's presented in front of them. It's, it's the same theory as a pinhole camera. With, with the differences are with the professional cameras, you can more control your shutter speed and your aperture settings and things of that nature. But when you, when you take a picture on film, it's not like digital. It's not like you can take a picture and say, oh, it's wrong and erase it and take another picture until you get it correct. It, has, it was something that was done precisely and it required precise technology which uh, would enable you to meter light levels that were not apparent to the eye. And I had specific camera technology, which they had 35 millimeter film cameras that were superior to any of the cameras that are technically on the market today. Now, when you you say the camera, go ahead. It's your show, Richard, but yeah, I I know this story like the back of my hand. He was using all the professional Nikon level equipment, including lenses and, and uh, what, I know it was good film, right, Uji, Will? But the, Uji, Uji and Agba. Okay. So Uber. standard, right, standard professional grade uh, film, celluloid film. But the thing is, what reason this is curious to me is because I'd never heard it before I talked to Wilbur, was that he took a film which had a very low ASA rating. Hang on, hang speaking. on. You have to define an ASA. Okay. It's the equivalent of ISO today on a, on a digital camera. Well, that helps Just, me. What the hell is ISO? Uh, it's the sensitivity to light. Okay, good, good. That's where we need so to So if it's dark, it. you want to dial up your if you if it's dark out, you want to dial up your ISO and, and and that way your camera will capture more light every time you, you you activate the shutter. It's more sensitive. It increases the sensitivity of the sensor inside the digital camera. Mm-hmm. In an analog system, you can't do that. So what will did So the film is and, the film is the film. Yeah, but it's and it has a very low uh, it has a very low sensitivity to light, most of it. Sounds, I mean, right? Isn't sounds that, primitive. Was it, what was the? It is. It, it, it's right. It's low, really low sensitive. It's not. It has nowhere near the type of sensitivity I have in my camera. Not even close. But you were able to. You, the way you described to me, you said I was able to push the limits of this of the sensitivity of the film using which technique? Something you had learned from. You said from the CIA. It was. Oh. It was um, well, yeah, you know, I, I was raised um, on Clark Air Force Base, which was a SAC CIA installation in the Philippines, um, which basically bombed the hell out of Vietnam during the Vietnam War. And in that facility were um, little complexes where, for example, the B-52s and the F-4 Phantoms that would do bomb runs in Vietnam would have their film cameras processed. And I gained access to a CIA film lab. My, my associates and I, meeting some junior high school kids, and I snuck into the CIA film lab and got caught. And in getting caught, they showed me how their technology works. And I applied their technology to what I do to capture extraterrestrial data as I do today. So you have a technique borrowed from the CIA, which basically makes film on a celluloid silver iodide or silver halide in a, in, a, in, a, in a matrix on a flat thing behind the lens inside the camera, light seal camera, you found a way to amp up the sensitivity of the film before you put it in the camera. No, after. That's oh, okay. Weird well, see, that's it's, why it's I want to go development. It's in development. It's in development. Because what you have right. to do in theory, it's, for example, we're, we're talking about in, in the 1980s, in the 1990s, we're, we're talking about 400 ISO film 
And, right. and that was commercially available at, in any photographic establishment. And they used to have photographic establishment, photo stores where you could buy cameras. Yep. Yeah. And I would take 400 ASA film. And because I knew the a way in which to augment the actual molecular structure of the film in development. In and, development. You know, in development, in development, yeah. because you no know, development is a chemical process, yeah. which is based on chemistry at 100%. So mm -hmm. we know that we know that if you develop a normal roll of film taken under normal conditions, in normal chemistry, it would take seven minutes to develop. But I wasn't taking a normal roll of film. I was taking a roll of film at 400, and I was pushing it to 6,800, 6,400 ISO. Okay, well, hold it there. We're, we'll we'll pick this up on the other side. My guests this morning are Wilbur Allen and Robert Stanley, who have collaborated in documenting something pretty weird, UFOs and visitors from somewhere else over and in Washington, D.C. We're getting to wormholes next, so stay tuned. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. You're listening to the first hour of The Other Side of Midnight. Be sure to catch our complete live show every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, for a full three hours of this kind of exploration. And be sure to visit theothersideofmidnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special Radio with Pictures guest page simultaneously. The Kinthea, our hardworking producer, specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show. Why? Because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment of what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you, as you're listening, the ruins? If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique Radio with Pictures feature, please visit theothersideofmidnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast, courtesy of Chris Bell automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server, what I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members 24-7. Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. 
Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the Open Hailing Frequencies room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our Club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer, which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kinthea posts for each show. Okay, here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported. In my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials to a minimum, If you're concerned about keeping us on the air, if you want to hear information that has been vetted far more than perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5, literally the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now, back to the show. Welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. You're listening in the background to Tony Catania, who's a new member of our musical family. We actually gleefully and willingly and overwhelmingly accept submissions of music for bumpers in the show and other things we do. So try it. You'll like it. This is Tony. Welcome back. Gentlemen, uh, Robert, we probably should go back to you because we've already encountered Wilbur's resistance to people kind of looking at this stuff and and taking it seriously. And the idea that you were using film, and if I got the sequence right, you put ordinary film, which is pretty slow, into a camera back then. You took your pictures. You then used this magic CIA technique to hype, to amp the sensitivity before you dunked it in the chemicals that develop it and produce an image. Is that correct, Rilber? It, it was done in development. It, 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 so the, so the, the secret is in the sauce. The correct. secret is in the sauce, but you also have to prepare it. You have to use the film in the manner in which it was not designed for. For example, if the film was 400 and I'm shooting at 12,800 ISO, wow. 
then I have to process my film at 12,800 ISO settings, which in those days did not exist. Of course. So right. I was able to use the technique that I learned specifically at Clark Air Force Base and augment it in such a way that I would use microwaves and develop my film and it would look flawless. Now, whatever happened to the idea in the CIA, you know, if we show you, we're going to have to kill you. Why would they loan you or, or give you their secrets of making film really, really high speed? Well, the problem is when, when you think about it, and, and that was an issue to them also when I, I and my associates snuck into that CIA film lab, is what you do with children that enter a military installation, the secret installation. Who live on the what base you, and are members of, of, of exactly. the community. Okay. What are you going to, are you going to yeah. shoot them? <laughs> no. How old were you well, when you did this? Seventh grade. Seventh. Oh my God. Uh, that makes me feel <laughs> so, oh. I had nothing yeah. else to do. My dad was in Vietnam. You know, I didn't listen to my mother. She'd stayed at home. So I'd sneak out of the house and my friends and I would spend our time sneaking into military installations. Oh my God. Among other things. But oh, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so the reason I brought it up. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Well, well, I want to make one more interjection because the only, the only technique that I'm aware of comes from the astronomical community, the mainstream astronomers who, you know, at uh, Kitt Peak or at Palomar or any other major observatory, when they would take pictures of the sky, it would be on film. It would be huge eight by 10 glass plates in many cases when they use the 48-inch Schmidt on Mount Palomar to do the National Geographic Sky Survey, the first one never done of the entire sky, visible from Southern California down to something like minus 25 degrees or something on these big, huge plates. Then they would make very large enlargements on paper, and they would store these in an archive, physical archive, and astronomers would come from all over the world. This is before the internet, of course, so they had to come there, and they made copies and they would send them some comp. You actually really had to come there or to Washington to see these huge paper prints from the glass negatives shot on film. Now, photographing the sky, even with time exposures, with insensitive film is really, really not a happy, happy job. So it was impossible with that level of technology. They developed a technique called hypering, which involved baking the plates, baking the, the emulsion on the glass plate which amped the sensitivity. And they also used gas, like I think ammonia, in a sealed container to hyper the film to make it more sensitive. Selenium nitrate. Were, were any of these techniques part of the CIA's uh, bag of tricks? No, because the B-52s and F-4 Phantoms were using essentially 70 millimeter motion picture cameras to document their bomb runs. Okay. And, it, and they were able to get with the 70 millimeter negative because it's a large scale negative, high definition examples of detail of Vietnam, the detail that they need to find out of enemy terrain. They got it with that technology. So they invented their own technique using super chemistry or whatever? Yes. And then you were able to borrow that technique. Yes. Or a, a, mine is a more advanced version of it. In fact, I was able to successfully push film to a level which exceeded anything anybody had ever heard and, and generate uh, photographic samples that are visually flawless. Now, there are people like an astronomer in Australia named David Mallon, no relation to Mike Mallon, who's in, uh, a planetary scientist in Arizona, David Mallon has taken for years, decades, some stunningly beautiful color imagery of the sky with the big telescopes in Australia. 
and he insists he will only use film because it has much higher resolution and certain other characteristics over digital. Have you ever been in a situation where you preferred, quote, primitive film over modern digital techniques? I honestly, I honestly, when, when I went digital, I, I went digital only because I knew for the time that I was king with film that nobody could touch me. And then, and then when they came out with the full frame digital camera, which was 25,800 ISO, and my limit was 12,800 ISO. I knew instantly that it was time to retire that technology. And, and currently, I'm 4 million ISO. Hmm. Good grief. I mean, these are numbers. That means, that, I, that means you can see in the dark. Yeah, I literally. see in the dark. Yeah, yeah. So you're literally recording individual photons. It's interesting that I would indeed be capturing these these events, but what's more compelling is that all of the samples I'm showing you are coming from a fixed pool of analysis. Even here in, in Virginia where I'm living, I have a specific location in which I aim my cameras, and that in that specific location in which I aim my cameras, I'm getting constantly the same events that I was getting in Washington, D.C., which, by the way, was four blocks from the White House. Mm. Okay, tell me, hold it there. We'll, we'll come back to the Wilbur Allen story in a moment. Let's, let's pick it up with Robert. When did you guys get together, and how did you decide, Robert, to do two books on a phenomenon that none of the major news agencies, which are crawling all over Washington, D.C., from all over the world, yep. would even think about touching or talking about or, or blogging about or posting or printing? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, it's a family show, so I'm not going to say what I'm really thinking. <laughs> um, <laughs> Hey, before I tell you that, I got the reason I wanted Will to explain how he pushed the film during development is because when you look at when you go to radio with pictures and you look at uh, photograph six. Of By the, the way, everyone needs to refresh the page. You can see he's finally yes. posted all the images. So you go to the other side of midnight.com, click on the graphic for tonight. That will take you to the guest page. Scroll down. What image are we looking at? Six. It's called Stargate. Six under your yeah. items, right? Yes, uh, right. Okay. The, oh, my God. Look at, oh, my God. Yeah, look at that. I know. but Yeah, that's what I said when I first zoomed in on it. I thought that there was – my initial impression was that there was a hole in Wilbur's film. And when I asked about it, he says, no, it's all intact. And I, then I, So then I was zooming in on it using um, some sort of Microsoft viewer and um, – uh, I wasn't enlarging it. I was zooming in on it. And that's where you get that animated GIF below. Mm -hmm. So you see it in the arrow above the dome, above the Statue of Freedom. But it's just a pinprick. It looks like a hole. Black. It's black. It is like a black hole. But when you zoom in on it, there's something inside it, something you can't oh, even see. And it's got geometry. It's got geometry. Oh, yes, it does. It's perfectly um, uh, ovoid. It's an oval. But it's also... But it's also gradiated. This the light coming off of it is, it's well. Here's the thing: when you look at that picture, picture six of the Stargate, those are not stars in the sky; those are actual oh. UFOs over the Capitol. And there's one landed on the roof of the Capitol, uh, the, the building. House side, house side, house side. On the, that's on the right hand right side. Section, on the lower yes. right hand section, 
when you compare one is side that to the other, kind of the, that light blue blob yes. next to the yes. cupola on it's top all, of the it's that it's, ball it's directly ball over the senate gallery oh yeah it's hovering over the i mean it's actually on the roof the house okay, gallery the, house gallery my bad house gallery yeah house right and those rooms are secure and they are used for um, high-level meetings of politicians and military. So wait a minute. You're saying that something physical came from somewhere, landed on the roof of the house side of the Capitol building in downtown Washington, brightly lit with floodlights. That's that light streaming up. They landed everywhere, not just the house side. No, I'm talking about I'm talking about I'm I'm talking about this particular this picture, yes, it was a major event. Yeah, we, we can't talk all, all at once. I'm sorry, talking sorry. about this specific piece of data, all right? Because this is documented. And while you're taking a picture of this vehicle perched on the top of the house side of the Capitol, the most highly restricted real estate on the planet, <clears throat> there's something yeah. in the sky over the dome, which when you zoom in or enlarge it, it's a beautiful, perfect oval with a gradient in the middle of a black gradient surrounding it, looking like a tunnel to somewhere. Somewhere. And that's the whole thing. Back in 52, when these things showed up, the military was putting jets in the air to chase them, and they would just vanish visually and on radar. Okay. You you mentioned something else. You mentioned something else millennials are not going to know about. Talk about 1952 and Truman and the Air Force and the radar and Ruppolt and all that whole Michigas. Yeah. Uh, Which is a technical term. (laughs) They call it the, okay, historically they call it the Washington merry-go-round because these things were just going around and around and around the Capitol and and they were chasing them and they would just pop out. They would just completely blink out and they they didn't, right, and they didn't know where they were going. Now the jets would return to base. This is in 1952. Around the same time, it was around July 16th, 1952. It's straddled, by the way, July 20th, 1952, which is a very important ritual date. Right, which would come later. But you're right. It was all in in that mid-July section when this was happening, Uh, not only in 1952, but again in 2002. Because look, Wilbur's pictures on July 16th were not in a vacuum. There was multiple events that other people saw in that same month of July 2002. In fact, that was even picked up by the mainstream media because at one point, I think it was July 20th, wasn't it, Wilbur, when they sent the jets up, NORAD scrambled jets? July 20th, yeah, over yeah. Andrews Air Force Base, the blue right. object that I photographed the 4th of July. And an orange, well, it was changing color, but the bottom line is there was a security guard uh, working there at, at uh, who's up all night. He saw the jets chasing these objects, which – some people had reported as meteors, but meteors don't behave that way. You can't chase a meteor in a military jet, uh, especially over a, a civilian area like that. Um, and he saw it. So he called into the local radio station, WTOP or something, I think. Uh, but in any case, they ended up reporting it on the radio station. And then it got picked up by the local affiliate Fox News. And it was then it was broadcast nationally. But so all this activity that we're seeing is, this is what I'm putting, trying to put into context. This one picture did not happen in a vacuum. There was multiple UFOs going in and out, multiple wormholes or stargates over the Capitol, uh, July 16th, 2002. Robert, let me Obviously, stop you there, because you're saying this with great certainty. If I looked yeah. at this, even someone who's familiar with film, I would say it was some kind of blemish on the film. 
How do you That's know it's, thought. quote, a stargate? What, what are your correlative data? Because this is something that um, Wilbur did catch a second. I mean, he, it started with what we thought was one image of a stargate. This was at the very end of the phot uh, photographic uh, session that he had shoot, that shoot he did that night mm -hmm. was for a professional uh, recording artist. It was for an album cover. That's he was, wasn't there to film UFOs. Frames. It was in multiple frames. Yeah, oh, well, see, that's that's what I need to know, Wilbur. Uh, Correlative. Well, there there was a series of shots taken, and and the series of shots all cooperate each other because what I photographed that night is consistent with what I'm photographing now. Okay, that's right. what I needed to know. So there's, there's, a, there's more than one example. Yes, right. more and than not, one example forensically. Not only that, I was able to put it into a timeline. Not only Wilbur's events, but all the events from 52 up into 2002 and beyond. See, that nobody had ever done that before. So that is the ultimate context. What do you mean by timeline? In other words, I took all the available data that I could get out of the public record and some people's private uh, emails and letters to me, and I put it in, just like I used to do for Honda, we create a timeline. So from, let's say, the first reports were 1850 that I could find, all the way up until wait, wait, 2000. Over Washington, D.C.? Yes. yes. 1850, who was president? Correct. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's not the point. It, it, people were seeing what they called, at that time, they called them airships. But they weren't. They were behaving like very much like what was later called UFOs okay. over the Capitol. And some of these things were – I do have newspaper clippings, by the way. Some of these were seen by children playing in a, uh, in, at, at schoolyard. And that was – you got to understand that they were questioned separately by their parents and the authorities because this was a violation of, of controlled airspace. And, and these children had no reason to make it up. They even did little sketches and stuff. So you have people from uh, pilots – uh, uh, police officers, uh, even just little children playing on the street, uh, photographers like Wilbur, uh, a school teacher who was abducted in Washington uh, that Wilbur came across. There's just way too much information. But what I took it, I, and I put it in a timeline. So, so each event had to be in the proper context of when did it happen, at, you know, in relation to all the other events. And when you see the, um, the frequency of these events, it, it'll make your hair stand up. I mean, the 1950s was off the charts, of all, and I actually did a chart, uh, of a statistical chart of it for the second book. And the 1950s held the record for the most amount of UFO alien activity over Washington, D.C., up until the first decade of the 21st century, at the time when Wil Wilbur was getting these pictures. So, um, you know, again, when you look at this picture, the sky looks a little grainy. But what that is, is because Wilbur has pu pushed it in development, you can actually see the, the light is uh, individuated like photons, which you normally wouldn't get. It would normally be very dark. Plus, Wilbur, Wilbur scanned the film with, um, what was that uh, scanner that you were using? The, it was a pretty high-end. Nikon cool scan. Ah, that's right. So once he did that and he, and he had a digital copy of the analog film, we were able to then um, – work with that in ways and analyze it in ways that, that took it to a whole other level. And I actually found this, this particular image completely by accident when I was looking at it. I, like I said, I thought there was a pinhole in the film. And so I asked him about it and he said, no, 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 it's, it's perfectly intact. So then I, I, I used a digital zoom 
I didn't, I didn't enlarge it. I just, in, I zoomed in on it and there you go. You could see that there's a, an actual wormhole directly over the Capitol. Okay, one of our listeners time. is sending me messages through the uh, uh, open hailing frequencies room. Uh-huh. Says that the blob in the photo appears to be a hexagon. I'm looking at that, that GIF you know, animation and I don't see a hexagon. So how is he getting that, no. I'm wondering? Um, maybe this, his system is it's pixelating it more. Right. It can't, if it's a hexagon, would be something that would be more associated to digital pixelation. This is analog film. It doesn't have no, a digital. No, well, no, he's talking about the he's talking about the gift that I made, Will, of me zooming in on that little but, black hole. Right. It would be. It would be, and that was the problem because it's on oh. both both the samples. Remember, there were right. images taken from this POV. Mm, yeah. Samples. So it's not something that would be. Wait a minute. You're uh, fading. You're fading, Wilbur. Yeah, where'd you go? It's not something that there would be, um, uh, how should I say? What is the word I'm trying to think of? Something that would be something that would be inherent or a byproduct of the film. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. The film documented what was there and what was there in the specific area in which Robert located this anomaly was no light at all. Yeah, that was what was weird about it. I mean, really strange. I, the, it looks black. But when you go into it, there's this white, tiny speck that's mm. actually perfectly, perfectly geometric. So uh, so here's part of the other problem, Richard. You'd ask me, how can people turn them back on it? Well, I think they've been so ingrained with the Hollywood version of flying saucers. When they actually see something like this that's emitting a, a, feel, a truly field propulsion system, it, they don't understand it. They think that it's somehow fake. It doesn't, doesn't, they can't relate to it. And it turns out, from what I've read in the, the military intelligence reports, that that's actually a sign of authenticity, is when you get this blurry light emanated, especially the gradient light coming off of there. This is a signature of the field propulsion system of those type of craft. Hmm. Okay. Um, so you've been documenting wormholes over the Capitol. You used to do all your photography over the Capitol, and then Wilbur you decided to move. A, where did you move to? B, why did you decide to move? And what are you seeing in your new location in terms of documenting this phenomenon? It's interesting. I, I not just used the, the airspace above the U.S. Capitol building, but I used P53 restricted airspace, which is inclusive of, inclusive of the U.S. Capitol and the White House. And in, in that specific airspace in which and I'm dealing specifically with the last eight years of my research, which would be the Obama administration and their claims that there were no extraterrestrial or <laughs> extraterrestrial claims in that they could recall in that airspace at all. But while four blocks away, I'm getting all of these <laughs> events, it specifically said that, that somebody in the White House was completely clueless. But what's interesting is in, in doing the years of research that I was doing in Washington, D.C., I specifically stuck to one region of space, meaning every day that I would do this research on a nightly basis, I would set up my camera and it would be mounted exactly the same way it was day one. So for the five years I did the research, I mounted my camera exactly the same every time. Wait, wait, wait. You've been doing this for five years in D.C.? You must have thousands and thousands of images. It's it's crazy. It's insane. What I'm getting, the spatial portals that I'm showing tonight and the spatial portals that are... um, both here in Virginia are consistently the same. It's all, it's no, but, everywhere. 
Richard was talking about the volume that, of, of material you have, you have on all those hard drive, external hard drives. It's, it's insane, Richard. Everything yeah. that we're showing on these 35 millimeter images I now have in Ultra HD 4K. My gosh. By the way, let me just ask a parenthetical question here, apropos of nothing except maybe somebody who's a photographer might get it. At what point did digital surpass film in terms of resolution? Uh, 25800 ISO. And roughly what year was that? 2008. Ah, okay. That's when it went full frame. Richard, the problem was, um, and still is for a lot of companies, is that they uh, the when you do that, the the fo- the photograph will look grainy. And however, Nikon, which is what Wilbur exclusively uses, he he started with the D seven hundred, right? Wasn't it D-700. that had that D-700 had the, full frame it, it, right? But it not only had high ISO, it had a proprietary algorithm in there that would compensate, so you didn't get that grainy effect somehow it was compensating and really extraordinarily well and now it's all the okay fine yeah that's right i think that's the right term but it's i love it i I didn't hear the term noise Noise reduction oh noise oh noise reduction okay yeah but it's yeah without losing the without losing the clarity that's a good trick that's a damn good trick well that's average you have to take more than one picture to do that no 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 it's and it's all done in the camera. It's like there's a computer in there. There's a really high end computer running uh, software. So and that and it's <laughs> it's it's mind boggling, honestly, where we're at. With oh, the, which the the, we of, could send some of this commercial photography to Mars <clears throat> to get real pictures uh, of what's really there. I mean, the the, the NASA nice. spends millions of dollars on cameras and they produce crap. That technology yeah. is 2008 <laughs> technology. They're they're using. Before it went full frame digital, they're using high definition square, like Hubble. Uh, it's a high definition square, but outside of that, it does absolutely nothing. Oh well, hopefully the next generation of, of imagery from space will be. But see, my feeling is it doesn't matter what how good the camera is if you censor it in the dark room, metaphorically right. speaking, you'll never yeah. see why what take, the camera why saw. Take pictures of it. Why take pictures? Well, it's for the in crowd. Mm, obviously. Course, that, that's my point. If, if you're, you've got okay. all this technology that's on this device to take photographs and they're not going to use the photographs, then why even have it on it? Okay, guys, we have another break coming up, so hold it there. My guests this morning are David Allen and Robert Stanley. We're talking about UFOs over the Capitol. We're going to branch out to the rest of the country shortly. And then we're going to talk about, um, you know, beings that actually seem to follow these, these guys. Anyway, you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and this is a tune from uh, our old friend Nick Skoros. Well, he's not that old. We've just known him a long time. We shall return. <laughs> Thank you. 
Greetings, truth seekers. This is Kinthea, producer for The Other Side of Midnight. I'm happy to announce that our Enterprise Mission Imaging team is offering our Image Analysis Workshop on Monday, April 16th for members only. If you'd like to know how to see those ruins in those NASA photos, please join Richard C. Hoagland and the Enterprise Mission Imaging team on Monday, April 16th, as we explore this topic together in our Image Analysis Workshop. And I invite you to go to theothersideofmidnight.com, click on the workshop link, and send us your suggestions of what you would like us to cover in this workshop or other workshops. We'll keep you posted. Stay tuned. for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that member used to chat about the show during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question that will be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live, and this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests, and I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire Bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward, and boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.